Section 7 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen by Albert Hubbard. Chapter 7, Part 1. Mayor A. Rothschild. It takes a great deal of boldness, mixed with a vast deal of caution, to acquire a great fortune, but then it takes ten times as much wit to keep it after you have got it as it took to make it. Mayor A. Rothschild. That the Jews are a joyous people and find much sweet solace in their sorrowful religion is proven by one fact too obvious to be overlooked. They reproduce. Children are born of love and joy. The sorrows of Jewry are more apparent than real. After every black fast, when the congregations used to sit shoeless on the stone floors of the synagogues, weeping and wailing on account of the destruction of Jerusalem, the youngsters, and the grown-ups as well, were counting the hours before the Feast of Pentecost would begin. The sorrow over the loss of things destroyed a thousand years or so ago is reduced by the lapse of years to rather a pleasant emotional exercise. Fasts were followed by feasts, also pro and con, as Mrs. Malaprop would say, so that in the home of an orthodox Jewish family there was always something doing. Fasts, feasts, flowers, sweetmeats, lights, candles little journeys, visits, calls, dances, prayers, responses, wails, cries of exultation, shouts of triumph, rejoicing of the law. These prevented monotony, stagnation and introspection. And these are the things which have pressed their influences upon the Jew until the fume and reek of the ghetto, the bubble and squeak of the rabble and the babble of bazaars are more acceptable to him than the breeze blowing across silent mesa and prairie, or the low moaning lullaby of lonely pine forests. The Jew is no hermit. If anything is going on, he is literally and poetically in it. The sense of separation is hell. If continued, it becomes insanity. The sense of separation is a thing that seldom presses upon the Jew, and this is why insanity passes him by and seeks a Christian as a victim. The Jew has an animating purpose that is a saving salt, even if this purpose is not always an ideal one. His family, friends, clan, tribe are close about him. Zangville, himself a child of the ghetto, comes to the rescue of the despised and misunderstood Christian, and expresses a doubt as to whether the ghetto was not devised by Jews in order to keep Christians at a safe and discreet distance. For certain it is that the wall which shut the Jews in shut the Christians out. The contempt of the Christian for the Jew is fully reciprocated. One-sided hate does not endure any more than does a one-sided love. The first ghetto was at Venice, it came into being during the Italian Renaissance, say about 1450. 
the Jews had settled in one corner of the city, as they always have done, and are still prone to do. They had their own shops, stores, bazaars, booths, schools, and synagogues. There they were, packed, busied with their own affairs, jostling, quibbling, arguing, praying, taking no interest in the social life outside. Jehovah led them out of captivity in order that he might make them slaves to himself. He surely was a jealous God. Of course, they traded with Christians, bought, sold, ran, walked with them, but did not dine with Christians, nor pray with them. There were Jewish architects, painters, printers, lawyers, doctors, bankers, and many of the richest and most practical men in Venice were Jews. They made money out of the Christians, and no doubt helped the Christians to make money, for, as I have said, things not founded on reciprocity do not last long. One fact that looks like corroborating proof of Zangville's presentry is that upon one of the ghetto gates was a marble slab, warning all Jews that if any of them turned Christian, he would never again be allowed to live in the ghetto, nor would he be saluted or spoken to if he returned, nor so much as be given a cup of water, but the cord, scourge, gallows, prison and pillory should be his portion. It was a curse almost like that cheerful one visited upon Spinoza, the lens-maker, when he forsook the synagogue and took up his home with the Mennonites. Children born and brought up in the ghetto always felt a certain pity for those who were obliged to live beyond the gates in the great, selfish, grasping, wicked world. Those inside the ghetto were the chosen people of God. Those outside were the children of the devil. No matter who built the wall, it is a fact that the government of Venice, which was Christian and under the immediate jurisdiction of the church, kept guards at the gates and allowed no Jew to leave after a certain early hour of the evening, nor on Sundays or holidays, or when the emperor visited the city. The only exception to this was on Holy Cross Day, which occurred once a year. On this day, all adult Jews were ordered out and marched by the soldiers to some Christian church, where they were compelled to listen to the service and repeat the Apostles' Creed. Robert Browning says that they were rounded up all right, but when it came to saying the creed, they twiddled their thumbs and said Ben Ezra's prayer. It is also quite probable that they crossed their fingers, for the Jews are a stubborn sort, given to contumacy and contravention. On all other days, any Jew who went out into the city had to wear a big yellow O on his breast and a yellow hat on his head. The Jewish women wore the O and also a veil across which were yellow stripes. These chromatic signs were changed a few times in the course of the 300 years that the ghetto existed, and so were the hours in which the Jews were allowed to come and go, but five o'clock in the evening and seven in the morning were the regular closing and opening times. The watchmen at the gates and the guards who rode round and round in their barkers were paid out of a special tax collected from the Jews. 
it was argued that it was all a sort of beneficent police protection devised by kindly persons who loved their enemies and did good to those who despitefully used them the man who cannot make a good argument for the ghetto lacks imagination gibbon who was a deist or monotheist and really liked the jews intimates that it was lucky for the christians that constantine didn't embrace judaism instead of christianity for if he had the jews would have treated the christians exactly as the christians have since treated the jews of course nobody claims that christianity is the religion of christ it is the religious rule of pagan rome with the jewish christ as a convenient label just why christians should worship a jew and pray to a jewess and yet despise jews is a matter so subtle that it has never been explained gibbon in this connection says at least one irrefutable thing and that is that the jewish people are men and women christians are men and women also all are human beings and it is quite likely that the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong but time and chance happeneth to them all i am not sure that gibbon is right when he says that the christians were lucky in that constantine did not turn jew to be persecuted is not wholly a calamity but to persecute is to do that for which nature affords no compensation the persecutor dies but the persecuted lives on forever the struggle for existence which the jew has had to make is the thing that has differentiated him and made him strong those first christians primitive christians who lived from the time of paul to that of constantine were a simple direct sincere and honest people opinionated no doubt and obstinately dogmatic but with virtues that can never be omitted nor waived they were economical industrious and filled with the spirit of brotherhood and they possessed a fine pride concerning their humility as most ascetics do humility is a form of energy it is simply going after the thing by another route and deceiving yourself as to the motive the primitive christians had every characteristic that distinguished the jew of the middle ages those characteristics which invite persecution and wax strong under it poverty and persecution seem necessary factors in fixing upon a people a distinctive and peculiar religion persecution and poverty have no power to stamp out a religion all they do is to stain it deeper into the hearts of its votaries centuries of starvation and repression deepened the religious impulses of the irish and it has ever been the same with the jews if the jew is criticized in america it is on account of that batinsky bumptiousness upon which he has no monopoly but which goes with the newly made rich of any nationality who have little to recommend them beyond the wallatoski there are no poor jews natives of america and it is worth while noting that our richest citizens are not jews either american-born jews have enough the poverty-stricken jews in this country come from russia bulgaria and rumania and their children will have money to loan if not to incinerate 
because they possess the virtues that beckon all good things in their direction. America is the true Judaic Zion. Here there are nearly two million Jews, and their religion is fast taking the form of a healthful Roycroftism. The downfall of primitive Christianity dates from the day Constantine embraced it and thereby made it popular. Prosperity is a form of disintegration, a ripening of the fruit. Things succeed only that they may wither. The business of every great religion is to die and thus fertilize others. The Jew has survived every foe save success. Civilization is now adopting him and liberal Judaism is fast becoming a universal religion, taught in fact, if not in name, by priests, preachers, and muftis of all denominations. The end of the Jew is near. He has ceased to be peculiar. Wolfgang Goethe was born in the city of Frankfurt in 1749. Goethe gives us a very vivid description of Frankfurt as he remembered it in his childhood days. He describes it as a town within a town, a fortress within a fortress. Then he tells us of a walled enclosure in this walled city, which was to him a very terrible place. It was the ghetto, or Jews' quarter. Through it ran the Judengasse, or Street of the Jews. It was a place packed with human beings. Houses, hallways, alleys, sidewalks and porches swarming with children. Goethe tells us how he at times would peep through the iron gates of the ghetto, but as a child he never ventured in. The children told one another how human sacrifices were offered in the synagogues, and as proof, pictures of Abraham and Isaac were brought forth that proved the point. There were plenty of men in the ghetto who looked exactly like Abraham. Goodness gracious! In this ghetto at Frankfurt was born, in 1743, Meyer Anselm, afterward Meyer Anselm Rothschild. When Goethe took his peep into the ghetto, this lad was about 12 years old. Goethe was six. Forty years later, these men were to meet, and meet as equals. The father of Meyer Anselm was Anselm Moses. He could not boast a surname, for Jews, not being legal citizens, simply aliens, had no use for family names. If they occasionally took them on, the reigning duke might deprive them of the luxury at any time, without anaesthetics. If a man had two names, say, Anselm Moses, it meant that his name was Anselm and that he was the son of Moses. Meyer Anselm was the son of Anselm. Rothschild means red shield, and this was the distinguishing sign on the house. All the people in that house were red shields. The house was seven stories high, and at one time a hundred people lived in it. Later, when the name became popular, all of the people in that house called themselves Rothschilds. In Goethe's time, there were just 160 houses in the Frankfurt ghetto, and these were occupied by 2,300 Jews. Goethe says that the practice of walling the Jews in was to facilitate taxation, 
the Jews being honoured by an assessment quite double that which Christians paid. At one time any Jew who paid 250 florins was exempt from wearing a yellow hat and the yellow O on his breast. Many private houses everywhere have walls around them, and the plan of dividing different nationalities from each other by setting apart a certain section of the town for each was a matter of natural selection everywhere practised. Mayor Anselm grew up with never a thought that he belonged to a peculiar people, nor did the idea of persecution ever trouble him. The only peculiar people are those who do not act and think as we do. Who are peculiar? Oh, the others, the others, the others. There was a big family for Anselm Moses to look after. All were hearty and healthy. The Mosaic law says nothing about ventilation, but outside of this little lapse, it is based on a very common-sense plan of hygiene. One thing which adds greatly to the physical endowment of Jewish children and almost makes up to the child of the ghetto for the lack of woods and fields is that he is not launched on the sea of life with a limited supply of love. Jewish children do not refer to their father as the governor and elderly women as Salem witches because the Jews as a people recognise the rights of the child and the first right of a child is the right to be loved. In the average Christian household, until a very few years ago, the child grew up with the feeling constantly pressed upon him that he was a usurper and an interloper. Such questions as, where would you get anything to eat if I did not provide it, were everywhere flying at the heads of lisping babyhood. The words must and shall were often heard, and that obedience was a privilege and not a duty was nowhere taught. All parents quoted Solomon as to the beauties of the rod, and that all children were perverse, obstinate and stiff-necked was assumed to be a fact. To break the will of a child was a very essential thing to do. The lack of the spirit of brotherhood that the Jew has encountered from the outside world has found a balance in an increased expression of love within his family. That most atrocious English plan of taking the child from his parents at a tender age and placing him in a boarding school, managed by Holoshikis, has never been adopted by the Jews. Fear, repression and shock to vibrating nerves through threats, injunctions and beatings have fixed in the Christian races a whole round of children's diseases, which in our ignorance we attribute to the will of God. Let this fact be stated, that old folks who are sent over the hill to the poorhouse have invited their fate, and conversely elderly people who are treated with courtesy, consideration, kindness and respect are those who, in manhood's morning, have sown the seeds of love and kindness. Water rises to the height of its source. Results follow causes. Chickens come home to roost. Action and reaction are equal. Forces set in motion continue indefinitely in one direction. The laws of love 
are as exact as the laws of the tides that moan and cry and beat upon the shores, the round world over. A family of ten children, born and reared in a noisome ghetto, and all strong and healthy? Impossible, you say, yet such is the fact, and not a rare exception either. Happiness is the great prophylactic, and nothing is so sanitary as love, even though it be flavoured with garlic. The father of Mayer Anselm was a travelling merchant. Call him a peddler, a Jewish peddler, and have done with it. He made trips outside of the ghetto, and used to come back with interesting tales of adventure that he would relate to the household and neighbours who would drop in. Not many Jews ventured outside the ghetto. To do so was to invite insult, robbery, and violence. However, to get out is to grow. This man traded safety for experience, and so got out and grew. He evidently knew how to take care of himself. He was courageous, courteous, intelligent, diplomatic. He made money, and always he wore the yellow hat and the yellow patch upon his breast. In the red shield there was usually at least one rabbi. One of the sons of Anselm Moses must be a rabbi. The parents of little Mayer Anselm set him apart for the synagogue. He was so clever at reciting prayers and so glib with responses. Then he had an eczema for management and took charge of all the games when the children played Hebrew I spy through the hallways and dark corners of the big, rambling and mysterious Red Shield. Little Mayer must have been nine years old when his father first took him along on one of his trips. It was a wonderful event. They were gone three days, and when they returned, the boy entertained the whole Judengasse with tales, slightly hand-illumined, about the wonderful things they had seen. One thing he learned, and that was that Christians were not the drunken, fighting, treacherous and bloodthirsty people he had supposed, at least... They were not all bad. Not once were they insulted or molested. They had called at the great house or castle of the Landgrave to sell handkerchiefs, combs and beads to the servants, and accidentally they had met the landlord himself. He it was who owned the red shield. The agent of the Landgrave came every month to collect the rent from everybody, that word landgrave simply meant landlord, a term still used even in America, where there are, of course, no lords, only ramrods. The landgrave had invited Anselm Moses into his library to see his wonderful collection of coins. And Mayor Anselm, of course, slipped in too. To describe the wonders of that house would take a book as big as the Torah, I think so. The Landgrave had a son, aged eleven, going on twelve, and his name was William. He wasn't so big as Mayer, and Mayer wouldn't be so old as William for a year, and even then he wouldn't. Children know nothing of social caste. Caste is a disease of grown-ups. It is caused by uric acid in the ego. Children meet as equals. They respond naturally without so much as a thought as to whether they ought to love one another or not. William got acquainted with Mayer by holding up a big speckled marble. 
and then in a burst of good fellowship giving the marble to the little stranger boy, all before a word had been said. Then, while the Landgrave was showing his treasures to Anselm, who himself was a collector in a small way, the boy slipped out of the door, and William took Mayer to see the stables. "'What's it for?' asked William, pointing to the yellow patch sewed tight to the breast of Mayer's jacket. "'That?' answered Mayer proudly. "'Why, that means that I am a Jew, and I live in the ghetto.' William gave a little start of alarm. He looked at the other lad, so brown and sturdy and frankly open-eyed, and said slowly, "'You can't be a Jew, because... because Jews eat children.' "'I'm a Jew. My father is a Jew. All our folks are Jews. The Jews are the chosen people of God.' Little Mayor spoke slowly and with feeling. "'The chosen people of God?' echoed William. Yes. They saw the horses, and Mayer looked at them with wondering eyes. There were no horses in the ghetto, just pushcarts and wheelbarrows. William had been lame, hip disease or something, and so had never been away down to the city, except with a nurse, or in a carriage with his tutor. The boys entered the house, and the Landgrave was still explaining to Ansel Moses how all coins made by the Assyrians were modelled by hand, not stamped out with a die, as was done by the Greeks. The boys hadn't been missed. "'Can't I have one of those to wear on my coat too?' asked William, pulling at his father's sleeve and pointing to the yellow patch on Mayer's jacket. "'One of what, my son?' asked the Landgrave seriously. "'One of those yellow medals.' The Landgrave looked at Mayer's yellow patch, and then involuntarily at the badge worn by the boy's father. The Landgrave's fine face flushed scarlet. His gaze met the steady, manly look of Anselm Moses. They understood each other. No one was near, save the two boys. They met as equals, as men meet on the plain or the desert. It's all a mistake, a foolish mistake, Anselm, and some day we will outgrow it. A man's a man. He held out his hand. The Jew grasped it firmly, and both men smiled, the smile of friendship and understanding. As the Jew and his son started to go, the Landgrave gave little Mayer a big copper penny and asked him to come back some day and play with William and Anselm Moses, the Jew, took up his pack that he had left at the servants' quarters, and holding the hand of little Mayor Anselm, they walked out of the castle yard, down among the winding trees to the road. Mayor Anselm took to his father's business as a bird takes to the air. From selling trinkets he began dealing in jewellery, old coins, curiosities, and paintings. He picked his customers and knew the weaknesses of each. Certain things were bought for certain people. The idea of becoming a rabbi was abandoned. He wanted temporal power, not spiritual. Money to the intelligent Jew is the symbol of power, of independence. There may be men who love the money itself, but surely this man didn't. He was daring in its use. He had the courage to take risks. His was a quest for power. When about twenty, he travelled as far as Hanover to visit a kinsman, 
and there he served for several months in a bank. He had a mind like those Japanese who travel to absorb and waste no time in battling error. Returning to Frankfurt, he transformed his father's little store into a bank and filled the window with real money, to the great delight and astonishment of the neighbours. From Hanover, he brought a collection of rare coins. The business his father had established gradually took on a cosmopolitan look. The House of the Red Shield became a sort of centre of trade for the whole Judengasse. And all the time, the friendship with the Landgrave and his son had continued. Commissions were given to Mayer to buy certain coins and pictures. Finally, he was entrusted to collect the rents of the Red Shield. He did this so thoroughly and well, and was so prompt in his reports, that he was finally named as custodian of the property. Other property was given to him to look after. Jews came to him for advice, and Christians counselled with him as to loans. He became known as the Honest Jew, which title, we hope, carried with it no reflection on his co-religionists. There are men, a very, very few, who are thus honoured with the title of Honest John. Gamblers can be recalled whose word was worth more than their bond. There are horsemen, gamblers too, if you please, who have little respect for the moral code, but who never prove false to a trust. Mayor Anselm had the coolness and the courage of a good gambler. In business he surely was ever ready to back his opinion. He would pay five hundred thalers for a jewel, give the man his price, and pocket the gem silently, while the hagglers and quibblers were screwing up their courage to offer a hundred for it. But here was the difference. Mayor Anselm knew what he was going to do with the jewel. He had a customer in mind. He knew the customer, he knew the jewel, and he knew his own mind. The Landgrave grew to lean on Mayor Anselm of the Red Shield. He made him court Jew, or official treasurer of the Principality. This carried with it the freedom of the city, and being a free man, no longer technically a Jew, he had a name, and the name he chose was Rothschild, or the Red Shield, Mayor Anselm Rothschild. He no longer wore the yellow badge of a despised race, yet he refused to leave the ghetto. The house of the Red Shield was his birthplace. Here his parents had lived and died, here would he live and die. He was still a Jew, earnest and zealous in keeping the law, the president or head of the synagogue. He was happily married to Letizia, she had no other name, and babies were coming along with astonishing regularity. To him and his good wife were born five sons and five daughters. The Red Shield was now his own property, he having purchased the freehold, a thing he could not do until he had attained the freedom of the city. Then we get the rather curious condition of Mayor Anselm supervising the municipal affairs of the whole city, and his sons, grown to manhood, still wearing the yellow badge, and obliged to keep within the ghetto at certain hours, on serious penalty. And it is worth while noting that Mayor Anselm kept the laws of the ghetto, and asked no favour for himself beyond that granted to other Jews, save that he did not wear the badge. Beyond this he was a Jew, 
and his pride refused to allow him to be anything else. And yet he served the Christian public with a purity of purpose and an unselfishness that won for him the reputation of honesty that was his all his life. By his influence the ghetto was enlarged, several of the streets widened, and all houses were placed under sanitary inspection. He established a compulsory free school system and maintained an art gallery in the ghetto that was a centre of education for the entire district. When this gallery was dedicated, Goethe came and made a speech of congratulation. He was the guest of the Red Shield. Afterward, Rothschild returned the visit and spent several days at Weimar with the great poet, and always they were on very friendly terms. The son of the Landgrave became himself the Landgrave of Hesse-Kassel and afterward Elector. He is also known as William the Ninth. He was a book-lover, a numismatist, and a man of many gentle virtues. I know of only one blot on his official scutcheon, but this was so serious that for a time it blocked his political fortune. In this affair, Rothschild was co-respondent. Rothschild was court Jew, and beyond a doubt attended to all details. End of section 7